Roll on, family. Roll on, crew. It's easy to just trash a room and walk away and not have to clean it up. I've got one mile on my pocket. Oh, and the other one on the hot dog stand. Welcome to the Presequential Podcast, where we go from 1 to 45 in under 90 and discuss the life, legacy, and little-known facts about every American president. This is episode 15, our season one finale. I'm your host, Ryan Allwart, joined by the guys. Blaine Zimmerman. Russ Slivka. How excited, scale of 1 to 10, are you to dive into the life of 15th president of the United States, James Buchanan? 11. You're 11. Oh, these go to 11. I'm a strong seven tonight okay. to dive into James. Blaine, you choose the books we read mm-hmm. in this journey, and you also name the episodes. Please tell the good people what book we read and what we're calling episode 15, our season one finale. We read the creatively titled President James Buchanan, a biography by Philip Shriver Klein. Uh, not sure if he's relation to Maria. Hmm. Uh, could be. And it was written in 1962. Your version was clearly stolen from a library. Oh, yeah. I, um, the the Xavier University in New Orleans, Louisiana. Yeah, not the one in Cincinnati. No. My version is clearly one of those like college textbooks that's just a Xeroxed copy <laughs> of the actual book. It rounds in at 429 pages, and this episode is called The Accountant. Oh, wow. I'm excited to hear more about that. This is 6,477 pages read. Wow. Yeah, that's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, We also enjoy a cocktail every time we do this podcast in honor of the president that we're talking about. Tonight, what are we drinking here, guys? What I did was I created a cocktail called the Buchanan, which is vodka, obviously, Mm -hmm. famously Russian, even though this one is from Indiana, and LaCroix. Uh, which I assume is French because <laughs> has to be <laughs> because <laughs> so he was minister to Russia, learned French there. What do you guys remember about James Buchanan from high school history class? I'm going to go with my proxy on this one. James Bookman was the only president who was never married. His niece, Harriet Lane, served as first lady. He was a senator from Pennsylvania. His eyes were unusual. One was nearsighted, the other was farsighted. And that was my seven-year-old son, Ben. Russ, you don't get a proxy. He already knows more about James Buchanan (laughs) than I did. I knew that he preceded Lincoln and that he did not do largely a very good job as president, to put it kindly. And I knew that he was the only bachelor that, that Ben pointed out. Only unmarried president. I think I did know that... The states actually started seceding under him mm-hmm. and not under Lincoln. Okay. Let's dive into his early life, education, his war service, and his engagement, shall we? <laughs> yeah. Let's do this. James Buchanan was the last president born in the 18th century on April 23rd, 1791. Although he was born in a log cabin in Cove Gap, Pennsylvania, now known as Buchanan's Birthplace State Park, his origins were far from humble. It's a classy name there. Yeah. Yeah. His grandfather disappeared in 1764, and his dad moved the family to Gettysburg. Wow. Uh, which, little foreshadowing yeah. for, for Buchanan. Where'd granddad go? He, I just told you he well, disappeared. I know he disappeared, but where'd he go? I don't know. He disappeared. That's how disappearing works. <laughs> Are you unfamiliar with the concept? <laughs> it's like Unsolved Mysteries of 1791. What was that guy's name? Robert something? He'd always stand under a streetlight and make you not want to go to sleep at and night? With a leather jacket, yeah. 
wasn't his name Robert? The guy Robert from Untold Mysteries? Yeah, yeah. It's not Wagner. It's not Klein. It's not Ludlum. Hmm. Well, Ludlum. <laughs> shout out to to Robert from yeah. Unsolved Mysteries. James's father, James Sr., had emigrated from Donegal, Ireland a decade before, married an educated woman named Elizabeth Spear, and became a successful merchant in rural Pennsylvania, settling near Mercersburg in the southern part of the state. The Buchanans eventually had 11 children, James being the second of them and the eldest son. That's a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. Even for the uh, the 18th century. Did they all survive? I don't remember that. No, the first one was a girl who passed away. So James grew up not knowing her. And I think there were a handful of others that didn't yeah. survive. I feel like most parents back then just played the numbers. Like, yeah. We'll have a few make it. <laughs> At 16, James entered Dickinson College, 70 miles from home in Carlisle, PA. Uh, and as a child, he was extremely accurate with numbers, and it carried over to, into his adult life. There it is. That's right. I do remember a story of him. So uh, he got a $15,000 check that he rejected because it was off by 10 cents. Yeah. Which at the time, $15,000, I would have taken it. Come on, man. Yeah. But he was like, no, no. Nope. Take this back. Write, a, write the correct one. And I'm sure the dude was like, okay, Karen. Like, <laughs> James, while he was at Dickinson College in Carlisle, liked to party and managed to avoid two near expulsions from the school over disciplinary matters. While he was there at school in 1808, he once drank 16 toasts on the 4th of July. And after two years, he graduated with honors and began his law studies. The toasts on the 4th of July is going to come back for him. And I think he actually did get expelled once, but he promised he would be good. So they brought him back. And I think his dad, being the wealthiest guy in town, helped pull some strings there. Kind of had a helicopter parents. He did? Yeah. Mm-hmm. His mom really liked education, being an educated woman herself. In 1813, he was admitted to the Pennsylvania bar and began oh, practicing in Lancaster. Shocking. Yeah, a right. president wait that a, was a lawyer? Wait a second. Get out of town. Well, when the British burned Washington, D.C. in 1814, James enlisted in a company of volunteers known as the Lancaster County Dragoons. That just sounds Scottish. Dragoons. <laughs> Yeah, welcome to the Lancaster County Dragoons. <laughs> what's, what's your name, Lottie? What's Jeez, funny is <laughs> before that, he actually moved to Kentucky and was like, I'm yeah. going to study law here. And yeah. then he looked and was like, actually, I'm never going to succeed here. Oh, I'm going back home. There's nothing here but Henry Clay. <laughs> I've lost my crutch and my father. The first assignment, so it was him and 12 others that marched to the Dragoons to volunteer. Their yes. first assignment was to steal 60 horses. <laughs> And they were given instructions, preferably from the Quakers. Oh, <laughs> we like those Quaker horses. <laughs> so his company really didn't see any action in the war. Private Buchanan remained in the service until the war ended in 1815 and was honorably discharged after the war and returned back to the Lancaster area where he resumed his legal career and quickly amassed a substantial fortune of a quarter million dollars back in that day, which is approximately five million dollars in today's uh, currency. he's one of only two presidents that served in the military as enlisted rather than officer. I could be wrong on that. He, I but I remember looking it up one day because I was like, that's crazy. This guy got out as a corporal and became president, and most presidents that were in the military were officers. I had, now granted this was written in 62, I had that he's the only president to date with military experience who did not at some point serve as an officer. Okay, so he was the only one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, I thought there might have been one more in that like era between mm-hmm. like Cleveland and 
McKinley somewhere in there, but I could be off on that. Well, he's 23 years old now, and he wins the election to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives as a Federalist and served for five years from 1814 until 1819. In 1819, 28-year-old Buchanan was engaged to Anne Caroline Coleman, the daughter of a wealthy iron trader. Around this time, his friends decided that they were going to go pull a prank, and their version of a prank was to go to a land auction and just shout out the largest bid. <laughs> I do remember this. And then <laughs> run off. <laughs> well, the problem was the people that owned the auction had horses. They were on foot. So they got caught and were handed a bill for $6,700. Yeah. Non-Quakers <laughs> yeah. delivering $6,700. Which back then, good grief, that's probably close to, I don't know, fifty grand nowadays. Yeah, who knows? Or, or more. Let's go to an auction and just yell things. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and Coleman, her dad was like, Famously one of the first millionaires in the United States, right? Did he invent the cooler, the styrofoam cooler? Isn't that a Coleman cooler? Maybe that is him. Maybe. I mean, it's entirely possible. Well, his busy schedule kept the two apart for long stretches of time, and rumors began to swirl that Buchanan was seeing another woman. Anne also worried that her fiancé was more interested in daddy's money than her. Mm -hmm. She eventually broke off the engagement with a letter, sank into a depression, and died just a few days later on December 8th, 1819. Now, doctors initially indicated the cause of death was hysterical convulsions, while others claimed she overdosed on the opiate laudanum, or committed suicide. Anne's father refused to allow Buchanan to attend her funeral, and Buchanan later wrote to him, quote, I feel that happiness has fled me forever, end quote. I, I really like old-timey doctors. Like, ah, let's chalk this one up to hysteria. <laughs> That's It's just such an odd concept to me, that they were like, no, it's hysteria. Mm-hmm. She, she went crazy and died over the boy. Regardless, very sad. Mm-hmm. Tragic end to their sure. uh, to her life and their relationship. Okay. Buchanan's now in Congress. He served on the House Judiciary Committee, and during this time, Buchanan's Federalist Party was dying off, and the young congressman found himself drawn to the biggest political star of the day, the hero of the Battle of New Orleans, Old Hickory himself, Andrew Jackson. Blaine, what did we call Episode Seven? The Frontiersman. No, was that the what Frontiersman? Yeah, it was yeah. Frontiersman. Yeah. yeah. So he's in Congress, and he strikes up a friendship with Alabama Senator William Rufus King. The two live together at Mrs. Ironside's Roll on. Roll on, family. (laughs) Roll on, crew. Let's dive in. Okay. The two men live together at Mrs. Ironside's boarding house on 10th and F Streets in Washington, D.C., This kind of roommate arrangement wasn't uncommon for young congressional newcomers, but since Buchanan and King were both older and were independently wealthy, the fact that they roomed together for more than a decade and remained inseparable the remainder of their lives incited vicious gossip. Andrew Jackson actually referred to King and Buchanan respectively as Miss Nancy and Aunt Fancy, which was a 19th century term for effeminate men. Popular theory is that Buchanan was our only president that was homosexual. Mm -hmm. We purposefully did not pick a different book on Buchanan because the majority of that book spent time speaking specifically to that. Yeah. And we didn't feel like that warranted that much effort because it's relatively unfounded. Mm -hmm. Maybe true. Maybe not. Nobody's ever been able to prove it, and there's way more things to cover in a president's life than that one era. Correct. There are other historians and biographers who suggest that he might have been celibate or asexual. Regardless, the jury is still kind of out. But like you said, Blaine, that's... It's definitely not the most important thing. So yeah. But Rufus is a dope name. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Unnecessary barbs 
notwithstanding. In 1828, Buchanan helped Andrew Jackson to carry Pennsylvania and win the presidential election. Shortly after Jackson's re-election in 1832, he appointed James Buchanan envoy to Russia. Buchanan was well-suited to the foreign posting. The two nations had been unable to negotiate a trade treaty, and Buchanan's legal skills enabled him to push the agreement through. His overseas duties enabled him to avoid becoming embroiled in the domestic conflict over slavery back home. During this season of service in Russia, Buchanan actually saw more of Europe than he'd ever seen of the United States. He did not really move around a lot when he was stateside, but uh, saw a lot of Europe while he was serving over there. A couple things real quick mm-hmm. we missed as I was making a drink. He, while in the Senate before he went to Russia, was somewhat involved in the Jackson Adams election one. Jackson yeah. Adams won. The, we'll uh, the corrupt bargain? Yeah. Uh-huh. So he essentially was trying to like research to get to the bottom of what happened. And because he was doing that, people just implicated him as though he were part of the corrupt bargain. He gave a not famous, I can't say famous, but at the time popular speech against the Quincy presidency when Quincy was president that, you know, a lot of people liked. And then he would get very ill, like violently mm. ill. From overwork and stress while being in the Senate. Okay. Now we've moved forward. Jackson assigns him minister of Russia, Uh which is where he learned fluent French. I think that was the language of diplomacy, was it not? I know it's the language of FIFA. (laughs) Okay. That's true. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, no, like I apparently, like all the referees and everything, they speak French on Hmm. the pitch. Okay. So nothing's in too touch. Only five bucks. Russ, uh, you're our resident Russian. Russ Ian Slivka. Yeah. Is that normal for Russians to speak French? Yes. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Uh, Ben Stein. And that's, you know, why we picked this drink. Yeah. The same year, Buchanan's youngest sister, Harriet, was to marry a Virginian minister named Robert Henry. Buchanan had found out that the Henrys owned slaves, which could have been political dynamite to his carefully cultivated neutral position on slavery. James arranged to purchase the Henrys' two female slaves, a mother and daughter named Daphne and Anne Cook, whom he brought to Pennsylvania to spare his sister any association with slavery. Rather than freeing the slaves, he turned them into his servants. The sales documents included an agreement that Daphne, then 22, would be indentured to his service for seven years, and her five-year-old daughter, Anne, was required to serve Buchanan for 23 years. It was seen as indentured servitude. Okay, so they went from slaves to a different name for slaves. Mm-hmm. Got yeah. it. Yeah, and the cool. Cook story... Yeah, that's fine. It's all on the up and up. The Cook story is not unique. Uh, you had mentioned in a previous episode that slavery had been illegal in Pennsylvania... Originally, before the United States existed. 17... Yeah. Yeah. But... After it had long been abandoned in most states, and this was very common, uh, unfortunately, for free blacks of that era, it was sort of a twilight zone between slavery and freedom. So slavery was illegal in Pennsylvania, but involuntary servitude was not? That is correct. I don't know for sure if he paid them, (laughs) is what I'm telling you. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he didn't. He returned from St. Petersburg in 1833, won a U.S. Senate seat, and he would go on to serve as senator for 11 years from 1834 to 1845. Well, okay, one real quick fun story about Russia. He found out that he was basically the giant butt of a joke when he was in Russia. The uh, Washington Globe had made some negative comments about the Russian emperor. And so, like, the Russian emperor's, I don't know, executive assistant came complaining to Buchanan about it. And he was like, you've got to get him to stop. And he's like, I can't. (laughs) And the guy was like incredulous. He was like, what what do you mean you can't just tell the press to not say something? And he was like, no, that's actually in the Constitution. (laughs) Like, it's the first thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, we can't. 
It's the first thing we wrote. You can't. It's right under the big <laughs> we the people. Yeah. You can just look like, a couple lines and, down. And they literally <laughs> couldn't wrap their heads around why he couldn't control the newspaper and what it said. They were like, well, I don't. What do you. You just yes. tell them to write this and you they write them. it or you kill them. That's, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> so when he gets back, he finds out that his father died mm-hmm. after getting bucked off a horse. Uh, mm. He also found out what one of his brothers and his mother died. Yeah. And then his best friend became critically ill. This was all in a very brief window of yeah, time as it well. It all happened real quick. But when we, we talked about Harriet and her wedding a little bit, I think he invented the I'm not mad, I'm disappointed phrase because there's a quote <laughs> in the book where he she didn't tell him originally that she got married. And he said, uh, quote, do not for a moment suppose I am offended. I am only disappointed. Oh, gosh. <laughs> wow. I was like, oh, that's where it comes from. Thanks, Uncle Jim. Yeah. Oh, another great Russian story. So he's at dinner in Russia with uh, a gentleman named Talleyrand, which oh. is a great name. That's his first name? Uh, I'm assuming it's his last Maybe name. Maybe he just had I wrote name. down Talleyrand. I remember Talleyrand popping up here and there mm-hmm. throughout previous books, so I yeah. assumed probably when I wrote this note, I would be like, you'll know who that is. Yeah. It does wrong. sound familiar. I don't know how, though. So Talleyrand's telling this story that, you know, back in the States, he gets this card from Aaron Burr. Oh, gosh. And he, Talleyrand, knew or was a supporter of Hamilton. Uh, Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord. You should probably do that, Ryan. You do the yeah. French accent Is thing. Is he French? I mean. Yes. <laughs> Former Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Kingdom of France. Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Barigot. That's what I was looking for. Mm -hmm. So he gets this card from Burr. In response, he just sends Burr a portrait of Alexander Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) No, no, no. He'll love it. (laughs) (laughs) Like he basically was so offended that Aaron Burr thought to send him something. He was like, I got something for you. How excited do you think Aaron Burr was to open that only to see that it was... Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. I I knew I never liked the French. You know, in our last episode on Franklin Pierce, number 14, what was the name of his episode? The Doe Face. The Doe Face. That's right. We mentioned that he preceded Buchanan as being a Doe Face, which uh, if you're just listening to this episode, wow, why? If this is your first (laughs) entree point. uh, A Doe Face was a Northern Democrat at the time, mid-1800s, who sympathized more with Southern Democrats than he would have with his own northern Democrats. Mm -hmm. And Buchanan was certainly one of them. Um, Yeah, he claimed to be against slavery, but he was also against abolitionists. mm -hmm. So that's weird. That's odd. I mean, there's your neutral stance, right? Yeah, he he straddled the fence. I mean, he thought that if we leave this undisturbed, the institution will eventually go away. Yeah, he he, that was one of the things he said. He said, well, the states will eventually just get rid of it Mm -hmm. themselves. Mm -hmm. I think he was one of those folks that thought, well, eventually the states will use up all their land and then it won't be affordable and then we can just pawn the slaves off on Mexico or something like that. Mm. You remember that theory mm-hmm. that ran around for a while? Yeah, there were several of those. I mean, gosh, even as far back as I think Madison, maybe yeah. even Je- uh, Jefferson Adams. But Polk was the one that really, well, mm-hmm. uh, Tyler and Polk, yeah. were, because they were like, well, if we bring Texas in. Right then we can eventually, we'll just start moving people Either around. send them south or send them overseas. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Which is funny because um, him, Buchanan, had his own theory of moving people that we'll get to later in the episode. Okay, sounds good. Good foreshadowing. When the Senate tried to silence abolitionist petitions with a gag rule in 1836, sponsored by John Calhoun. (laughs) Oh, boy. I thought we were past that guy. (laughs) If you have not ever seen what John Calhoun looks like. Just make sure you're seated, and then Google John C. Calhoun I made of South Carolina. John Calhoun, like the older picture of him, not the young one oh. where he looks like he just saw a picture of John Calhoun. <laughs> the older one with the hair and the oh, neck man. beard. Man, that's my little like ID picture on my MacBook when I go to log in. So I see that's it every fun. day. <laughs> it's a good. It's I like, hope you forget it's there. And I'm like every oh. day. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> Buchanan opposed it, but he used a states' rights argument that could be used to uphold slavery as he did. But he also refused to support the Wilmot Proviso, which was a proposed law that would have banned slavery in all of the territory the U.S. gained from Mexico, including Texas, at the end of the Mexican-American War. Buchanan also supported returning escaped slaves to their masters. After Rufus King, his friend, departed for France in 1844, Buchanan wrote to a friend, quote, I am now solitary and alone, having no companion in the house with me. I have gone a-wooing several gentlemen, but have not succeeded with any one of them. End quote. Oh. A-wooing. A-wooing. I am... Lofty language. I am going (laughs) a-wooing. At the 1844 Democratic National Convention, Buchanan received votes for the party's presidential nomination on the first seven ballots before James K. Polk was ultimately selected. And he correctly, so he had declined the nomination for presidency that year, but then correctly moved away from Van Buren to Polk, which basically set him up to reap some future rewards. Yeah, he was offered the position of Secretary of State by Polk, Mm -hmm. as well as the alternative of serving on the Supreme Court. Do you remember why he didn't take it? Um, No, I don't. So, well, no, he did take it. Well, he he took the State Department. I thought you were saying why he didn't take the Supreme Court. So he actually had to sign. He did take Secretary of State. Mm Mm-hmm. But he had to sign a document by Polk stating that he would resign if he planned to use the cabinet for his personal gain to the presidency. So sort Polk, of an Polk early made, NDA. His, or, Polk or made his entire cabinet do that. But I don't know how you uphold that. Like, how do you know Buchanan's trying to become president? You mean, you mean how um, you uphold it? Yeah. Oh, so when he – it's funny. Uh, well, no. Not really. We'll get, there's, there's, <laughs> it's not really funny. There's, but there's some wordplay with Polk that comes into his, his presidential run. He asked to be taken off the cabinet and put on the Supreme Court. There it is. It wasn't that he was offered it. He said, I'd rather go be a judge. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well, he and Polk nearly doubled the territory of the United States through the Oregon Treaty with Great Britain in 1845-ish and the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo with Mexico, which included territory that is now Texas, California, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, and Colorado. Deseret. Deseret, that's right, the the giant Mormon state out there, as it was known. To his credit, his skill as a diplomat during the Polk administration averted the possibility of the U.S. having to fight two wars on two different fronts against Great Britain and Mexico at the same time. Uh, He was actually accused of leaking the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo and... From what I read, it it sounds like that was probably true. And around this time, he develops a nasal polyp. Oh, yeah, that's that right. He ended I up about having this. to get like multiple surgeries to take care of. Ooh. Um, so mm. just the word polyp makes me go, ooh. Yeah, and it's spelled weird. It's not as bad as uh, 
Polk's surgery that he had as a young man. You remember that one? Oh, sure do. Uh, I, I do want to take a moment to talk about his motivations were effectively money the entire time. Like he always wanted to just have money to be able to potentially run for president one day and just try to play the long game on it. Yeah. Like turning down the presidency, like he kind of looked at, we'll call it old school attitude of like, well, if I don't want it, it'll look better on mm-hmm. my resume. But he really was motivated by just being rich enough to run for office and that just be the end all be all. Hence the name of the episode, The Accountant. He was very fastidious with mm-hmm. his bookkeeping. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Balances, weights and measures, that kind of thing. He was also an outrageous drinker. Yeah, he did like the booze. He had this quote that said, the wine was none of your thin potations, but stout and heady wine that would make an old British sea captain weep joyful tears. <laughs> wow. <laughs> What's the last part of that line? You would make a British sea captain. A stout and heady wine that would make an old British sea captain weep joyful tears. (laughs) Oh, gosh. Like, I've never had a wine and been like, oh, so stout. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I'm not a British sea captain either. No, you're not anymore. (laughs) Yeah, given that. Hung up my Gordon Fisherman's coat. The war made heroes of its victorious generals, and one of them, General Zachary Taylor, running as a Whig, won the presidential election of 1848. With Taylor now and the Whigs in charge, Buchanan returned home to PA and plotted to gain the 1852 Democratic nomination. Standing in his way was Senator Stephen Douglas, a young politician from Illinois, who we'll hear more of in our next episode. Buchanan and Douglas fought furiously for the nomination all the way through the convention in Baltimore, and in doing so, really doomed each other's cause. 34 ballots resolved nothing. No candidate could amass the required two-thirds majority of the delegates. Finally, the Democrats turned to a compromise candidate, a little-known New Englander who offended no one, Franklin Pierce of New Hampshire. On the 48th ballot, Pierce wrapped up the nomination, denying Buchanan the White House yet again. And for the rest of Douglas's life, Buchanan would despise him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, got in his way. Well. And then we got Franklin Pierce. Thank God. <laughs> thank, thank goodness that Franklin Pierce saved yeah. the day as a dark horse. really set that up. So Pierce is president from 1853 to 56. Buchanan served as his minister to Great Britain. And this would prove to be a lucky break for Buchanan, keeping him in politics while giving him distance from Pierce's troubled administration. Pierce saw Buchanan as a threat to the future presidency. So Pierce sent him to London thinking, well, if I send him to London... He won't be here to be able to do anything people know about. Right. That ends up backfiring. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. We talked about it a little bit last episode. I'm confused about why he <clears> saw <throat> him as a threat, though, because Pierce promised, like Polk, and actually, as Buchanan would, too, to run for only one term. Well, he promised that. He yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Okay. So while Buchanan's in London, yeah. my, my good dear friend Daniel Sickles shows up. So you may remember from the last episode. I vaguely remember. I talked about (laughs) Daniel Sickles and the things he did in London, one of which was he brought his favorite prostitute, Fannie Mae, to a 4th of July dinner. That's right. In which Buchanan was the guest of honor. Okay. So I said earlier that Buchanan has a history of 4th of July toasts. There it is. Sickles refuses to stand when the queen is introduced, Hmm. introduces his prostitute to the queen, (laughs) and then gets really mad that they don't, like, give reverence to George Washington for 
the 4th of July. <laughs> like, they're basically, to them, it's just another day. Yeah, it's Tuesday. And they're like, he's like, what are we, do- what are we doing here? This is the 4th of July. Like, why aren't we doing, why aren't we celebrating this? So, <laughs> the 4th Buchanan, of July. <laughs> Buchanan gets super mad and immediately gets Sickles sent home. Wow. So... Because, I mean, he's the stinking guest of honor, yeah. and then this random dude from New York <laughs> with this crazy mustache is like, no, we're celebrating the 4th of July. Like, <laughs> Buchanan's like, listen, I've done some crazy toasts before on the 4th yeah. of July. When I was in college, you need to sit down. <laughs> yeah. I know how this works, Dan. You need to leave. Yeah. Go get your coat and leave. So then he and and I think this is probably a best segue uh into a break before yeah. we talk about his coming back from London and what happens. Yes. Begs for a release from London and basically before the boat like docks in New York, he starts his presidential campaign. He does. Yes. He's 65 years old now. Mm-hmm. An old buck as he was known. Now sets his sight on 1856. And with that, we're going to refresh our beverages, which Blaine again made the Buchanan, which is delightful. Can we put that recipe in the show notes? Yeah. Oh, perfect. It's vodka and LaCroix. Mm, Goes down (laughs) easy, doesn't it? We're going to let you hear from one of our fantastic sponsors. Before we dive into James Buchanan's presidency, you're listening to episode 15, The Accountant of the Presequential Podcast. Whether you're just starting out, well on your way to living your dream, or eagerly approaching retirement, make sure you're financially prepared to achieve a lifetime of goals. Zach Cerruti, Rob Novotny, and their team at Northwestern Mutual can help you reach them with a personalized financial plan. They apply time-tested strategies, providing education and expert advice to help you make decisions based on your priorities. As your circumstances and priorities change over time, they will work with you to revise your plan so you can meet each of life's challenges head on and celebrate your accomplishments along the way. Zach and Rob and their team at Northwestern Mutual will be able to unpack ideas that can leave you and your family well planned. To learn more, visit the link in our show notes or email Rob at robert.novotny at nm.com. That's robert.novotny at nm.com. Welcome back to the Presequential Podcast. This is episode 15, The Accountant, about James Buchanan. And where we left off before the break was James just got back to the United States from Great Britain. And what he quickly realized was that by being away for the Kansas-Nebraska Act, it helped his chances because what he was supposed to be going away, Pierce sent him away so he could be out of sight, out of mind, and not do anything spectacular. But what it actually did was it kept his name out of the mud when Mm -hmm. these scandals happened. It was a blessing in disguise, really, to go Mm -hmm. all the way across the pond. However, Minister Buchanan was not completely free of controversy. He helped to draft the Ostend Manifesto in 1853, strongly suggesting that if Spain refused to sell Cuba, the United States should seize the island by force. This enraged anti-slavery Northerners, but pro-slavery Southerners viewed Buchanan as their guy. (laughs) You want to talk about the presidential election of 1856? Yeah, so his supporters were called, I'm guessing it's pronounced Buchaneers. Buchaneers. Yeah. Buchaneers. Buchaneers. Which I don't hate. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of (laughs) cool. Buchaneers. uh, So some random woman tried to get him to marry James Polk's daughter. Oh, my. uh, Which she quoted as an agreeable way of polking your way into the presidential office. Oh, boy. (laughs) 
I just need to take that in really quick. So, like I said, he he basically started campaigning as soon as ship docks. That's a P at the end of ship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And his whole campaign was built around stopping the disunion. Correct. So they basically ran claiming Republicans wanted to end slavery, and the Republicans were like, that, yes, that's exactly what we want that to do. That is absolutely accurate. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so basically his message was essentially a vote for Fremont is a guarantee for disunion, which is rather ironic because, as we'll see, the union actually fell apart under his command. Yeah, it really did. Uh, John C. Fremont was the first presidential nominee of the fledgling Republican Party, and former President Millard Fillmore, representing the American or Know Nothing Party, Buchanan actually defeated both Fremont and former President Millard Fillmore. Around this time, shortly after Pierce's inauguration, Rufus King, Buchanan's old friend, dies of tuberculosis four years before Buchanan becomes president, and Buchanan described him as, quote, among the best the purest and most consistent public men I have ever known, end quote. Now, evidence suggests that after Buchanan won the election, his niece, Harriet Lane, and King's niece, Catherine Ellis, destroyed letters from their correspondence. Some historians have also speculated Buchanan may have been asexual, which we mentioned, because his papers never mentioned love, lust, romance, women, attraction to either sex. So it's interesting to think as he's coming back home, his, let's just say his best friend, I will I personally won't go so far to say as his partner because the evidence is, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's we don't officially know, but he is again, there's a lot of loss in Buchanan's story. Yeah. There really is. But he comes back and he's elected and all this strife and division is going on in our country. And he basically like his message was essentially like we need the country to have a conservative government just like fifty years ago which Hmm. tends to come up a few more times. Yeah. We need to make things like they once were. Fun fact about after he was elected, Pierce forgot about his inauguration. Like, oh, is that today? Oh, gosh. (laughs) Is it March 4th? (laughs) Sorry, I'm Uh, hammered over here. Yeah, could have had something to do with uh, how much Pierce drank. So his cabinet was full of Jackson men. They were just rural politicians and lawyers. There was no young people. There was nobody from the West. There was no industry representation. It was just he surrounded himself with people like him. Which is not really the best political move. I I think you want to be surrounded with somewhat of a diverse uh, group of advisors. Yeah, you would think so, at least. Maybe that's why things went the way they did. Mm -hmm. So he was his cabinet uh, called him a stubborn old gentleman, very (laughs) fond of having his own way, but I don't know what way his is. Uh, (laughs) That's that's like the nicest way to say, like, I don't really know about this guy. Yeah. (laughs) A stubborn old gentleman. He's stubborn in his ways. We just don't know what his ways are. Mm. Can we go on record and can I quote you on that? (laughs) Yeah. Don't worry. It won't be in a book in 1960. (laughs) That you're going to have to buy for $47 on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) Should have got the photocopied version. Like I think 12. this is. I think this is a great time to uh, bring in our resident producer, but also vice presidential expert Russ. You've been sitting here a lot, listening to us uh, opine on James nice. Buchanan. Thank you. I would love to know about his vice president. Sure, John C. Breckenridge, the Colorado. C- Who Colorado? Did they name Breckenridge Colorado after this guy? I assume so. I mean, the C stands for Cabell. Oh, oh, us. I think it's Greek Cabellas. for Colorado. <laughs> 
Cabell is definitely (laughs) Greek for the Spanish word (laughs) Colorado. Yeah, I think that's the roundabout way to (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. James Breckenridge was the senator from Kentucky. Okay, and a veteran of the Mexican War and which one? The not the Mexican American War, the Mexican War. Is there a difference between the Mexican American and the Mexican War? I believe so. Okay, all right. Well, uh, one had America. Yeah, yeah. There's two distinctly different names. So he leaned more towards the Southern Democrats as well. He was kind of a a middler. He was pro-Union, but also pro-slavery. Like, he really Hmm. liked to kind of ride that line between them. That would make sense if he's from Kentucky. Correct. Because Kentucky, even into Lincoln's time, was somewhat of a... They were union. They were union, but not always. Correct. There were many people in Kentucky that uh, straddled the fence or were pro-slavery. Yeah, and he very much... Wanted the federal government hands off. He wanted the yeah. states to states, decide. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Hold the line. Hold the line. What Love. a good Toto song. Love isn't always on time. Mm. I think the best Toto song, if I could, uh, Russ, if you would allow me this, uh, would be Rosanna. Not Africa. Mm. Hmm. That's fair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is That's it? epitaph status right there. Okay, go okay. ahead, Russ. Uh, we'll James Breckenridge. <laughs> oh. Uh, what do you think the best Toto song is? I'm a real big fan of Africa. Okay. Hey, there's nothing wrong with Africa. Good. It's a great song. Let's get that on record. It's a good song. Gosh, is it good? Written by a band of session musicians who not one of them had ever been to Africa. But I That's believe they also very... backed up Michael Jackson on the album Bad okay. or Thriller. All right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like all of Breckenridge. Breckenridge. Breckenridge, Colorado, the, great skiing town. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Breckenridge, who did become the youngest VP in American history at 36 years old in really? 47 days. Okay. Yeah. Actually, Lynn Boyd was supposed to be the vice presidential candidate, but oh. at the nominating convention, there was individuals that wanted John Breckenridge to be the VP, okay. but he didn't want to go against the party's nominee. So when he stood up to give kind of that speech of, I appreciate it, thanks for nominating me, but this is a Lynn Boyd show, the speech was so <laughs> was so endearing mm-hmm. that they said, hey, you are yeah. a much better VP, I'd, so they nominated him instead. I'd like to go on record that this is also a Lynn Boyd show. I like that there was just someone out in the audience to go, gosh, I was just moved by Mr. Breckenridge on stage. Yeah. I felt that in my loins. Just more than lift one. ticket. <laughs> Are you going to get some fresh pow pow on the pow pow up there? I wouldn't go up there now. So he he decides I'm going to do the noble thing mm-hmm. and say, listen, this is a Lynn Boyd show. I'm going to step out, but by doing so, he becomes the nominee. Steps in. Wow. Yeah, he steps in. Man, that's a that's a real Breckenridge move. Right that is there. a real Breckenridge mm-hmm. move. He was almost pushed into it. After Aaron Burr, he was the second vice president to be accused of treason. Oh, my. Yeah, there's there's oh a lot my. there. There's a lot there. Phew. But while he was in office, yes. Buchanan immediately shut him out. And he never actually met with Buchanan. Like, he had mm-hmm. requested a private appointment to talk to Buchanan. And the response to that request was... No. It was more than no. Oh. So he asked to have a conversation with Buchanan okay. and was instead told to make an appointment to meet with Buchanan's hostess and niece, 
Harriet Lane, yeah. which he was offended by. And Naturally. Yeah, yeah. And he actually headed home to Kentucky, so he never met with him. So the remainder wow. of his vice presidents, there, there was no real communication between the two of them. Gosh. Yeah. After yes. the vice presidency, he sided with Jefferson Davis. Oh, okay. Yikes. So Not to be confused with Jefferson Starship. Yeah. Correct. Wrong side of history. Yeah, mm. he really... He really went the wrong direction on this one and ended up as Jefferson Davis's Secretary of War. Oh, gosh. Yeah, it it wasn't great. Wow. Like, he really... And he he tried to kind of hold the line in the middle Mm -hmm. to keep... Love on time. To keep love on time. (laughs) It didn't happen, though. Yeah, because it isn't always on time. Yeah, I mean, he was the last of the secessionists to actually leave Washington, D.C. He was holding Hmm. out to try to keep everything there, and he finally went to the Hmm. dark Dark side. side. So here's a question that I have, not necessarily for you, Russ, but for both of you. And you, the listener, I would pose this rhetorically. Why do you suppose there was so much fence straddling Back in the late 1850s, when it was very obvious to, I would say, the bulk of the country that we were headed for civil war at that point. Ambition. Okay, yeah. go yeah. on. I think that, that they wanted to, these powerful positions and they realized that the majority of people that would need to vote to put them in those mm. would not want them to take one strong side or the other. Okay. Did, yeah. he, did this guy know Pierce at all? I mean, Pierce wanted him as his vice president as well. I don't know how well he knew Pierce. You got to think if he's connected to Jefferson Davis and so was Pierce, they probably would yeah. run into some of the same circles. Yeah. Interesting. He yeah. ended up being the brigadier general for the Confederacy. Wow. Russ, as always, thank um, you. Not only do you produce our audio and make this podcast happen so our listeners can hear it, but you bring the knowledge. He he puts in a governor in Kansas, Robert Walker, and Walker didn't want to be the governor of Kansas, <laughs> and so they have the the vote on whether or not Kansas is going to be uh, free or slave. Yes, and a census is conducted at eleven homes. They found 180 voters. No, sorry, 1,800 voters. Okay, thank you. At 11 homes. How did that work out? And he was like... <laughs> what? He was like, they did a census. Everything's on the up and up. A lot of people up in the attic. Yeah. So... Gosh. Yeah, he basically said, I'm standing by the law on this one. And that becomes his kind of main message moving forward is the law says this is... 11 homes and 1,800 people. Yeah. The, uh, that math does not check out, Governor Walker. So we also talked about, you know, when we were talking about the, the slavery issue. Yeah. Similar to Monroe, he had an idea to rehome a group of people. Okay. And that was the Mormons. Yeah. So yeah. in 1857, mm-hmm. he has like a mini war with Brigham Young and yeah. the Mormons. Yes. And it probably really would have been avoided had the Mormons like outlawed bigamy. Because the issue was they were concerned about the government saying you can have Deseret because they would be at that point in their opinion taking the government stance the bigamy was okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm not – for anybody that's like it's not true or something like that, I'm telling you what what – we read in these books like the, right. the government's concern was that the Mormons allowed bigamy and they didn't want government sponsored bigamy. Yes. So his idea was to just rehome the Mormons to Alaska. Wow. But he couldn't get the funding to do it. So, wow. You know, Hold on. Alaska about, at this point must have been still owned by Russia, obviously. Yeah. So thinking about a little revisionist history. Wow. BYU yep. could be in Anchorage instead of Provo. 
Wow. Uh, you know, if, if this would have worked and we would have found the funds to make it happen. Because Good. at this time, like, they had just been working their way west, fighting. Right. right. They, they were in, what, Pennsylvania, fought their way out of that. Yeah. You're in, like, the St. Illinois, Louis area. Yeah, St. Louis, Louis yeah. maybe, yeah. Um, got into a bunch of scuffles there. Yep. Ended up, what, during the Mexican-American War, volunteering a battalion for land in Deseret. Yes. And at this point, he was like, what if we send him to Alaska? Wow. Out of sight, out of mind, mm. and it didn't go through. So, wow, there's a big what if in history. Yeah, this is known as Buchanan's blunder, as it was known in the press. This mini Mormon war. Yeah. Also, it's important to note around the same time the Panic of 1857 is happening, which collapsed state banks, businesses all over the country. The South escaped largely unscathed, but mm-hmm. a bunch of northern cities had drastic unemployment, and. Buchanan agreed with the Southerners who attributed the economic collapse to overspeculation. And by the time he left office four years later, I'm flash forwarding a little bit, the federal deficit stood at $17 million. So there's a lot not going well for Mm -hmm. Buchanan already uh, before secession officially happens. In 1859, abolitionist John Brown, who we've talked a little bit about, mm-hmm. leads a raid to seize the federal armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Uh, his goal was to create this uprising that would eventually lead to a war against slavery. And Buchanan deploys approximately 90 U.S. Marines, uh, the Leathernecks, right? Is that mm-hmm. what they're called? And Colonel Robert E. Lee against the raiders who were captured. Brown was then hanged for murder, treason, and conspiring with enslaved people. Interesting to see the timeline of Robert E. Lee involvement, uh, his involvement there. Let's talk about 1860. All right. So let's. Yeah. Let's dive in. 1860. Homestead bill. A lot going on. So delegates to the Democratic National Convention assemble in Charleston, South Carolina on April 23rd through May 3rd, 1860. And Buchanan holds true to his 1856 campaign promise not to seek a second term. He would end up being the last Democrat to win a presidential election until the 1880s. So there's almost an entire generation where this brand new fledgling political party, the Republican Party, is in executive power. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So they bring up the Homestead Bill, basically a measure that they knew would force him to veto. So he vetoes the Homestead Bill. He gets the egg on his face, uh, which essentially gets Lincoln elected. Mm -hmm. And then what happens? Well, he refutes the right of Southern states to leave the Union, but he also believes the Constitution did not empower him to stop them. So there's, again, this theme of fence straddling in Buchanan's Mm -hmm. life that follows him into his presidency. So as we're heading into the election of 1860, I think that's a good place to put a pin in it, take a break, and come back with his election against Lincoln, and then what happens with the secession. You're listening to Episode 15, The Accountant of the Presidential Podcast. Facing the transition out of the military is rarely easy. It doesn't help that the staggering number of options you're faced with can be overwhelming. But there's a light at the end of that tunnel for all veterans, and that light shines brightest here in Indiana. Lucrative careers in fast-growing industries are plentiful. Housing costs are amongst the lowest in the nation. And you can live in the country while being less than an hour from a world-class city. At InVets, we're showing veterans how to translate the valuable skills they've learned to the civilian world while connecting them with careers they can be proud of so they can lead fulfilling, purposeful lives. 
Go to InVets, that's I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Create a profile to learn more about Indiana communities, browse the current open job openings in these communities, and receive your free shirt. That's InVets, I-N-V-E-T-S dot org. Welcome back, friends. So the year is 1860. The delegates to the Democratic National Convention assemble in Charleston, South Carolina, and Buchanan holds true to his 1856 campaign promise not to seek a second term. He would be the last Democrat to win a presidential election until the 1880s. Later that year, in December of 1860, Buchanan advised the American people, primarily Northerners, that they could preserve the Union by not interfering with the rights of Southern states to manage their own domestic affairs, especially in regards to slavery. He'd even proposed a constitutional amendment that would assure Southerners that the federal government would never abolish slavery. It's pretty bold. As the Union begins to dissolve, Buchanan refuted the right of Southern states to leave the Union. Nonetheless, he also believed that the Constitution did not empower him to stop them. Yeah, so unlike Andrew Jackson back Mm -hmm. in the 1820s, 1830s, who was when South Carolina tried to secede, he was like, Find out. Yeah. How dare right, you. Right. Like, Buchanan was like, well, there's no written law, so we'll just do nothing. And it was mm. just such a stupid stance. So, what, nine? Nine of the states seceded under Buchanan. Very quickly, too, yeah. in succession. So he's a lame duck president, and everybody knows Lincoln is coming in. And a lot of people, I think it's just natural to think that the states seceded under Lincoln because the Civil War is greatly attributed to him. Right. But it's important to know that they actually seceded under Buchanan, not Lincoln, before Lincoln got to the presidency. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves into the legacy portion of this conversation, but Buchanan gets, let's just say marked down for lack of a better term, by presidential historians and academics for his passivity. Rightfully so. You know, he he stands by the wayside. He sees this conflict coming that has been broiling for a while. Does nothing to reinforce Fort Sumter. Even though they keep telling him, like, this is where they're coming first. Yeah. And he did nothing to send any federal aid down there. This is just mere months before Lincoln's inauguration. This is January 5th, 1861. Mm-hmm. Buchanan sends the ship, the Star of the West, to Fort Sumter with supplies and reinforcements. It gets fired upon by the freshly seceded state, which claims eminent domain over f- federal property. And he just doesn't retaliate or apologize for the action, and he just leaves office with the country in disarray. He leaves Washington, D.C. on March 4th, 1861, telling President-elect Abraham Lincoln, quote, Good luck. (laughs) Essentially. In that time frame, before we get to that quote, in that time frame, he did have a meeting with former President John Tyler, who was the uh, what head of the Confederate Constitution? He was a member, if I recall. He was uh, he had been elected to the Confederate legislative body, yeah. But and I think so got came, sick before he could hold his seat. But he came up to start the negotiations on peace or whatever, mm. and it basically just ended up in everybody in the room yelling at each other. Yeah, and that was while Buchanan was still in office, and wow. then he went back and died before Lincoln. Took, took the takes office. office. Yeah. So I didn't realize that. What was his quote to Lincoln? Sorry. No, it's okay. Quote, if you are as happy in entering the White House as I shall feel on returning to Wheatland, his estate in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. okay. you are a happy man. End quote. Yeah. 
Well, I'm sure you were happy to leave because you left it in disarray. Yeah. And it's easy to just trash a room and walk away and not have to clean it up. Yeah. I think that's, obviously we're getting a little too ahead of ourselves. We'll dive into this more with our season two opener. But I think that's why Lincoln is such the towering figure in our nation's history as he is, among other things. I mean, the assassination aside, that's that's why maybe you would know about him as the textbook of, okay, Mm -hmm. he's killed at Ford's Theater. But like... The fact that the cards that he was dealt showing up in D.C. I mean, to save face, grief. Buchanan wow. actually had meetings with leaders in South Carolina to try to get them to hold off until March wow. so it would fall on Lincoln. Ugh. But mm. then as soon as the South Carolina domino fell, so yeah. did right. Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. Yeah. Like, they just all started falling really quickly. Yeah. And so he actually met with them and he was like, look, I know what you're going to do. Yeah. Like, let the record show that I was never against you. Why mm. don't you just wait till this new guy comes in so it all falls on him mm. and it won't fall on me? I groan because I've been in, I mean, and Blaine, you have as well, obviously, with your military service, but I've been in positions of leadership before with organizations I've been a part of. And I just, I groan because I, I, I see him passing the responsibility to someone else who, <laughs> I mean, Lincoln at that point had served as a, you know, a young congressman, you know, a lawyer, but gosh, he's got now this nation that's being torn apart and Buchanan doesn't just step aside. I mean, he boldly says, yeah, I'm just going to go back home to Pennsylvania, essentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the goal of any good leader should be twofold. One, to set your subordinates up for success in their next role, whether that's with your organization or elsewhere, Mm. to empower them to be as great as they possibly can in their next role, and B, to successfully make whoever's succeeding you Mm -hmm. as successful as possible. Those should be your two, you know, main, like, thoughts. And his was, I'm going to get mine, and whatever negative comes, I'm going to try to pass that off on the next guy. Mm. And like, so it's just a prime example of an absolutely terrible leader. Yeah. You can't really look at Buchanan without looking at (laughs) Mount Lincoln, you know, on the horizon. I mean, you you really can't gosh. And and again, we're going to get more into that in in our next episode. And then he spent most of his post-presidential years just roaming the country, trying to, to talk about how it wasn't his fault. And at times, like, and there were lies spread about him. We'll give him that. Like, there was a lie that that he went to Europe to sell Confederate war bonds, and he, like, refuted that. Okay, that wasn't true. And if it's not true, in my opinion, like, why bring it up? Because all you're doing is shedding more light on the issue, Mm -hmm. right? But he went so far to write a book to try to clear his name. He did. Like, that, come on, man. Yeah, (laughs) It was called uh, Mr. Buchanan's Administration on the Eve of Rebellion. It was his memoir. It appeared in 1866, a year after the war ended, but it was largely ignored by the public. He he blamed the Civil War on the Republican Party and the abolitionists. He was also vilified. The Senate even drafted a resolution to condemn Buchanan, uh, and his portrait had to be removed from the U.S. Capitol to keep vandals from damaging it. Posters captioned Judas across his forehead— depicted him with his neck in a hangman's noose. His former cabinet members, five of whom had been given jobs in the Lincoln administration, refused to defend him publicly. The Confederate advance guard almost got all the way to his house in Wheatland, but the Susquehanna Susquehanna. Susquehanna Bridge was burned, which stopped their movement. Wow. So they almost got to him. Mm. 
It's yeah. I you gotta mean, wonder what they would have done. Uh, I, that's a good question. Like, would they have? Well, maybe he would have walked out and been like, "That's not true," and they would have just left. Like what mm. happened with uh, <laughs> Pierce? Remember? Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> a mob comes to his house and they're yeah, like, why aren't you mourning President He's like, because I don't have to. And they're like, oh, good point. That's a strong point, former <laughs> President Pierce. They were like, yeah. the Confederates showed up and they were like, they would have, if they would have crossed the Susquehanna, yeah. they would have been like, hey, you, you know, you started this. And he'd be like, but I didn't. And they'd be like, all right, you're right. I mean, yeah, I don't think they would have seen him necessarily as a hero. I think they would have made him seen him as a compatriot in the cause possibly maybe yeah <sighs> well after he publishes his book that is largely ignored i've ignored it i have too you i guess you we can all still know russ has ignored it <laughs> <laughs> you can still get it i guess you can order a, a copy of mr buchanan's administration on the eve of rebellion if you're really really looking for a strong presidential autobiography mm-hmm. anyway he retreats inside the walls of his wheatland estate and he only sees close friends in the the final days of his life he becomes afflicted with room rheumatic gout i don't really know what that is is that a joint issue anyway, sounds like it yeah. doesn't sound good can't drink any more red wine or red meat mm, can't can't do anything much can't go out dancing with the the boys um <laughs> yes Wooing them? No more wooing. It's fun to stay at the Weedland Estate. (laughs) Anyway, he dies at age 77, a day prior to his death. I really got Russ on that one. (laughs) A day prior to his death, uh, Buchanan predicts, quote, history will vindicate my memory. He actually says, I have no regret for any public act of my life, and history will vindicate my memory. Mm. And I'll take uh, wrong statements for a thousand, yeah. Alex. Yeah, I, I appreciate the um, the no regrets mentality. No regrets. No regrets. <laughs> That's from a Snickers commercial, isn't it? No, it's from a no movie. Regrets. No regrets. I appreciate that aspect of it, but to say that... Uh, Gosh, I did nothing wrong. That's that's really, really bold, and I, I would yeah. say short-sighted, <laughs> to, yeah. to say the least. He dies at Wheatland on June 1st, 1868, surrounded by siblings and friends. His last words were, O oh, Lord God Almighty, as thou wilt. Buchanan was buried in Woodward Hill Cemetery in Lancaster, PA. Let's dive into his legacy, Blaine, shall we? Okay. All right. So to his credit... He's a talented, skillful politician who, for the most part, had considerable legal ability. He could balance varying coalition agendas. And, and it, books. He could balance, balance books he very did well. A, he was very fastidious with yeah. his bookkeeping. In a different time, perhaps he could have been a successful president. But James Buchanan, uh, academics, historians agree, was no match for the forces that tore at the country in the late 1850s. He failed to resolve the slavery question, leaving his nation's gravest crisis to his successor. He failed to try to solve it. Like, he didn't even attempt to solve yeah, it. Yeah, he really yeah. didn't. He really didn't. Yeah. He just kind of said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to get through the next couple of months. Yeah, go yep. home. Yeah, not my problem. Yeah, this is, he was a very classic. That's not my job. Like mm. he was the the stereotypical government employee. That's mm-hmm. like oh, that's not my job. That's that's Bill fourth floor. Okay, help help me because I try as much as possible to be an optimist. This may be hard. Okay, try to find." 
a silver lining in James Buchanan's, let's just say, overall legacy? Just try. Um, well, I mean, his followers being called the Buccaneers is pretty cool. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Like, <laughs> you wonder why Tampa Bay doesn't have a, just a picture of James yeah. Buchanan James on their Buchanan. helmet. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard. Did, it's hard. I guess he did compromise on the 54th degree to the 49th degree for Oregon. Okay, yeah, so he established the, the boundary and between he, U.S. and Canada. And he did say that, like, we shouldn't get, you know, overtly ambitious on how much of Texas we should get. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't know. Outside of that, that's probably, yeah. like, the only silver lining. It, it's hard to dig through the pre-Civil War era of his tenure. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it is hard. It, and again, with these presidents, sometimes it's going to be very easy to see. Other times it's going to be very, very hard to see. Sure. I think in this moment, you know, in this this overall conversation about what does the presidency stand for? Uh, how is our country different? Uh, how is the fabric of our nation different because of each one of these uh, individuals mark? It is hard, admittedly, to look at Buchanan and go, what's the upside? Mm-hmm. And so, and again, we're, we've never positioned ourselves. I don't think it's ourselves... necessarily our job to find the upside. Like, right. Like, yeah. I, I think it's worth the conversation, though. Where to... is he ranked? He's last, right? Yeah. It, it, the C-SPAN's Presidential Historian Survey. And again, I think the last ranking, which again is under a bunch of 17. different criteria. Yeah. yeah. 2017. Sits last, just below last, yeah. number 17, Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Man, that's wild. That the mm-hmm. bottom two are sandwiched around number one. Yeah. Because he's number one, right? Yeah, I think it's yeah. uh, largely Lincoln, then Washington, and yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't remember who's number three. That's wild. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope people learn something. I think, I mean, I know I did. I, I, I didn't really know a lot about James Buchanan coming into it. And thank you for picking a book, by the way, that didn't really dive into the speculative yeah. Uh, minutia about his life. That yeah, really. I think that's for a different podcast. Yeah, that's yeah. not ours, right? Yeah. Gosh, this book is uh, kind of dense. I don't it's, know if you really want to. It was a little longer than I like would have wanted. Yeah, I would have appreciated one of those like brief, you know, hundred and fifty page. Yeah, yeah that was, we've seen here and there. It was kind of dense. Yeah. Let's dive into one of my favorite moments. Yes, little known facts. Little known facts. All right, so Buchanan is the only president to have come from the great state of Pennsylvania. Do you know the state nickname of The Keystone State. There it is. Way to go. I know that because their guard, uh, their patch, is a keystone. Okay. Yeah, that's... I have no idea why Pennsylvania is called the Keystone State. I just know that it's called the Keystone State. So you know what a keystone is, right? It is the center stone within an arch. Okay, so if you look at the original 13 colonies, yeah, where's Pennsylvania? Right, probably it's smack dab in the middle. There you go. There it is. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Blaine. Yeah. That's fun. That's I, I actually just made that up. I don't know if that's true, <laughs> but you. I would assume that that's why, because of where they're, they're the fulcrum point. Listen to this segue about to happen. Okay. Speaking of stones... <laughs> <laughs> James Buchanan was a Freemason. Oh boy. And he served as the master of Masonic Lodge number 43 in Lancaster, PA. There you hmm. go. Freemason. Okay. Multiple portraits showed the six foot stately Buchanan almost always cocking his head to the left 
as a defect in one of his eyes made him tilt his head, quote, in a perpetual attitude of courteous deference and attentive interest, end quote, like Ben shared. Yeah, as we learned from Ben, he was farsighted in one eye and nearsighted mm-hmm. in the other. Ophthalmologists today believe he may have suffered from exodeviation, a form of wandering eye. So oh, if you're looking at lazy, James, you don't know which one to yeah, look at. he had one eye on the hot dog stand. It's, yeah. What's that from? That's a phrase I heard growing up without people with a lazy eye. They got one eye on you and one eye on the hot dog stand. <laughs> what? What kind of community were you raised in? Tipton. <laughs> a lot of hot dog stands up there off the, off the state road four. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I've never heard that expression. Yeah. That's fun. She's got one on the hot dog stand. I always thought it was, I've got one eye on my pocket. Oh, and the other one on the hot dog, dog stand. stand. <laughs> <laughs> During his presidency, the short-lived Pony Express came to fruition, joining oh. both coasts at last. That would all change, though, with the transcontinental telegraph line completed in 1861. Not a single U.S. fort... I guess this is in the category of to his credit, was lost to the rebelling states while he was president. Like his successor, Abraham... We didn't lose any in those six weeks. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, like his successor, Lincoln, uh, Buchanan refused to fire on rebelling Southerners who threatened the forts. I think for Buchanan, though, that was a different reason of why he refused to do yeah. so than Lincoln. Lincoln had a little bit more magnanimity. Yeah. 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 Then then Buchanan might have. Three states were admitted to the Union while Buchanan was in office. Can you guess them? We've talked about two a lot. Utah? Nope. Mm. Oregon? No. Yes, there's one of them. Oh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. okay. So yeah. Oregon. Okay. California? Nope. That was uh, Polk. No, that was Polk. We've talked about two of them a lot? Uh-huh. Uh, 1854, I think Franklin Pierce. Yeah. New Mexico? No. Arizona? Nope. And Colorado? Breckenridge. Kansas. <laughs> oh, duh. Kansas, Kansas and Missouri. Yeah. Okay, duh. Of and, course. And lastly, Minnesota. Oh, not Kansas and... Oh, because Missouri Kansas, already, yeah. Oregon, and Minnesota. That's not in order. I think Minnesota was the first, and then Oregon, and then Kansas. So, so was this when Paul Bunyan was alive? Uh, gosh. He, or he had already created all the lakes. Wait, was Paul Bunyan an actual person? No, he was a mythical creature, wasn't he? <laughs> but creature, I just mean giant man. <laughs> With a big blue ox. What was the significance of the blue ox? Why Why was the ox blue? Babe, I, right? Yeah, Babe, Babe the, the blue, blue ox. ox. I don't know. Maybe he created the lakes. I'm not sure. I think the oh, glaciers Russ, created the lakes, didn't it's they? It's Russ' question. Yes. <laughs> hey, Russ, look that up, would you? Okay, I'm still looking up the origin of one eye on the hot dog stand. <laughs> <laughs> I've got one eye on my something and the other eye on a hot dog stand. <laughs> Is that not a phrase people use? I remember hearing it growing up. Google playing, has never heard of it. Playing basketball in a half court in Tipton, Indiana. Whew, yeah. Wow. What is the song that I'm singing? What One hand the, in my pocket. What, yeah, was Alanis it Cheryl Morissette? Crow? Oh, Alanis, Alanis Morissette. Yeah. Speaking of hot dogs. <laughs> <laughs> this is my favorite part of the show. I just love it. I just love how we derail. Unlike Franklin Pierce, who did not enjoy derailing, which if you haven't heard that story, good gracious. Okay. But what did... Oh. Okay. Yeah. Yep. What did the Buddhist say to the hot dog vendor? Uh, I'll have one with everything. There or make is. me one with everything. Make me one with everything. That's one of my favorite dad jokes. Yeah. 
Got a couple more fun facts, little okay. known facts about James Buchanan. There is an Indiana connection to James Buchanan, guys. Uh, mm. We should mention we are from Indiana. Uh, all of us are here in the Hoosier State while we record. Buchanan, Indiana is a small community in oh. Floyd County across from Louisville, Kentucky, mm-hmm. across the Ohio River, named after President James Buchanan. Down by New Albany. Yeah, yeah, right down there. Would you guess that James Buchanan does or does not have a memorial or monument dedicated to him? I would say that he does not. You would be incorrect. He actually does have a memorial in Washington, D.C. Huh. You can find it in Meridian Hill Park. Uh, it is a bronze and granite memorial near the southeast corner of that park. It was commissioned in 1916, but not approved by Congress until 1918, and not completed and unveiled until 1930. The memorial features a statue of Buchanan, bookended by classical figures representing law and diplomacy, with an engraved text reading, quote, The incorruptible statesman whose walk was upon the mountain ranges of the law. Incorruptible. Yeah, incorruptible. That, that quote is actually from a member of his cabinet, hmm. uh, Jeremiah Black. Hmm. So there you go. He actually okay. does have a memorial. Perfect. Yeah, yeah. I don't know who goes there. I don't know I'm what I'm surprised one... it hasn't been taken down. Yeah. Gosh, I, I did not know that, though. So. Yeah. Did you have any other fun facts about uh, James I, I didn't. Okay. I had right. zero fun facts. So here's the deal. We are officially one season done. Yes. Thank you. For listening, yeah, this entire time, we thanks have, to all of our sponsors. Yes, please go patronize them. Go check them out. Yeah. Go, uh, please support them. Uh, if you loved this episode on James Buchanan, <laughs> wow, did we work hard to help you love it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that we, I feel like this went better than I thought it was going to. Yes, I would agree. Please, we invite you subscribe and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with a fellow history buff, and please leave a review because that really does make a difference. Also, you can get episodes early, ad free, and you can get some bonus episodes. Episodes of the podcast when you join our Patreon community. Go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash presequential. Our season two opener episode on 16th President Abraham Lincoln will be released on a TBD date. Yes. Uh, we are discussing that as a team, but we will be sure to let you know. In the meantime, you can follow us on all the social media if you aren't already at Presequential. Please let us know what you thought of the episode. We hope you enjoyed our season one finale, episode 15, The Accountant on James Buchanan of the Presequential Podcast.